Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and another edition of The Yoke with Doak. Uh, this is from the batch of recordings I did this winter up in Traverse City. So this is hour two of our conversation. Uh, we hit on a bunch of different topics, including uh, Pete Dye, Bandon versus Scotland, and the ways you make money as a golf course architect. So this is a fun episode, uh, really good conversation with Tom uh, this last batch of interviews. So it'll end, uh, It's I think it's about 50 minutes long, and uh, then we'll have another one uh, slated for a couple weeks from now. So without further ado, here's Tom Doak. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, other architects and your courses. And I, I'm curious, this is kind of a two-part question. I'm adding the first part. Okay. Um, do you, as, you know, as a somebody that gets inspired by different things, is there, does it, what inspires you when you go to a golf course change over time? And then if so, this is the question, what feature on a golf course inspires your creativity the most these days? Um, and that's from why, uh, man's ear. Um, yeah, it's changed over time. I mean, you know, now more and more I look at, I really admire when I see a golf course that they manage to get the greens and tees really close together. And it's just, the walk is so seamless from you're off one green and you're right there on the next tee and it works, which is another thing funny, you know, when you're doing a course for a tour event, that doesn't work so well for them. <laughs> they want space all around the tee and they want space all around the green for spectators. So with very few exceptions, they hate it when the, tea, you know, the, they'll build another tee out away from that green just so there's room for the spectators and it's yeah it's a longer walk but we can get people around it and that's part of the point of this so you know part of it depends on what's your goal but um you know i guess you know going into when i was first traveling 40 years ago i was looking at cool greens and cool bunkers and those still are arresting to me but after having seen 1600 golf courses or whatever the hell the number is now i don't i i rarely see something like that that i haven't seen before so you know more and more now it's like when you see something that was really a constraint on the site like you know a boundary that cuts in really abruptly and squeezes two holes together or or a big tree or a a rocky hill or anything like that it's like how they use that when they were really stuck and they had to figure out a way to make it come into play what they do with it because you know those are the things that'll give you ideas for a boring site mm -hmm. oh what if i just stuck a little feature in right here what's uh what's an example of one say you've seen in the last year that that really had you go wow I hadn't I hadn't seen or thought of something like that before. Well, last year was a bad year for that for me. Well, I didn't really get to. Uh, so, 
Extended out the last uh, five years. Or no, even last year. Last year, one of the coolest places I visited, I was in Kenya for like five days, seeing all the golf courses around Nairobi. And golf in Kenya is cool. They walk. No golf carts. They, they don't want anything to do with golf carts. You know, they're runners. They're also walkers. So golf cart culture, no. No. Somebody built a, somebody built a new course there that, you know, it's a housing development course, and the green tea walks are terrible. It was designed for carts. It was designed by some South African designer guy. And nobody will use the carts. They just, they're just like, who's the idiot who put the green here and made us go all the way over there to the next tee? <laughs> but they're not going to get in a golf cart to solve the problem. Um, but I did see this little, this, this older golf course, this little thing that was almost abandoned. If you drove by it, you would think nobody plays golf there. You know, the fairways are shaggy. And they were just like sticks with a little ribbon or something for flag sticks. But, um, and an open air clubhouse with like a barbecue. But it's a nine hole course and it's like three loops of three. You know, you come right back around to the clubhouse and come right back around to the clubhouse and come right back around to the clubhouse. And the members that were showing us, showing us, it's just like a giant party. You never get you, every third all. You stop and have a beer and you have something to eat, and then you go play three more holes and you do it again. That's all that you know. That's that's the game to them, and it's it's just it sounded like a blast. I mean, we were the only ones there that day, but but with a bunch of your friends, that would be a perfect way to play golf. And I don't think I've ever seen a golf course laid out like that in the states. That's a food and beverage manager's uh, dream. Yes, it is. <laughs> All these co courses that renovate their food and beverage should, you know, get their golf courses working that way to make the food and beverage work again. To, I mean, it'd be a bad idea at a lot of places, but um, so uh, that you talked about South Africa. Uh, Simon Marginson actually asked, "Why does South Africa lack a world-renowned golf course?" Oh, I'm not sure that it does. I mean, Durban Country Club's a really good golf course. I guess it's not in the top 100 lists anymore. You know, most of the newer, they build a ton of newer golf courses in South Africa. But the problem is nearly all of them are housing development golf courses. And, you know, like we were saying early on, it's like if the client's primary goal is the housing development, it is really hard to overcome that and build a good golf course too. Really hard. Because you just have, you have no support. You know, when it's just like put the whole, you know, a lot. I mean, there are a lot of golf courses built in the States where some non-golf person is saying, put the hole there. You move all the dirt you want, but the whole, the tee has to be right there and the green has to be right there. And oh, by the way, there's going to be this whole line of houses, you know, 50 yards to the left of all this. You know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to be really creative with that and come up with something that's looks like it wanted to be there so pros and cons of bandon versus scotland for an east coaster and this is from uh, another one that i forgot to write down the name sorry sir sorry <laughs> your question was great and and uh maybe future credit <laughs> pros and cons um if you've never been to scotland before or Ireland. Um, there's so much variety of golf over there. That's the main reason to go. It's just, you can see, you know, Americans don't do it that much. They go to all the top 
50 ranked golf courses and all the open championship sites that are all kind of, you know, more by the book and more conventional because they've had, you know, they've had all that imposed on them by hosting big tournaments and stuff. Whereas if you go to East Lothian for a few days and you play Muirfield, that's like that. And you play Gullen, that's kind of like that. But you also play the 5,000 yard Gullen number three and you play Kilspindi, which is really, really short and par 67 or 68. And you play North Berwick with all the stone walls and playing right along the sea. There's just a tremendous variety of golf in a small area there. And people miss that by just going to all the big championship courses. Um, and the golf culture in the UK is its own thing. And everybody should experience that sometime in their lives. How, how relaxed it is. And, and how, um, how natural it is, really. Bandon, you get that sense. I mean, everybody's there to have fun. Nobody's there so much to break the course record or anything like that. And you, you know, you have the same, you have the same conditions. You're you're battling the elements, wind and rain and whatever, firm ground. You know, you're playing real links golf courses. Um, the convenience of Bandon is it's all right there. You don't have to get in a car and drive. 30 miles to the next golf course or 150 miles. If you're on, if you're just playing the five best courses in Scotland, you know, driving up to Dornick and, and back to Troon and over to, and over to Muirfield eats up half your time. You're just driving around. Whereas Bandon, it's hard to get to, but once you're there, you're there and you could, you know, you could, you don't have to have a car at all. Um, you don't have to figure out where to eat every night. <laughs> You know, so if you're going with buddies and you want to just maximize the time of having fun with your friends, Bandon's a pretty good alternative. Yeah, more more direct flights into there too now, you know, so that helps also. So uh, Angela Moser. Angela Moser, one of my associates. What's your favorite aspect about working in Ireland? Hmm. You know, I want to... I've, I've said I wanted to do a golf course in Ireland for a very long time. And I'd looked at two or three over the years and had them fall apart on me for whatever reason. Um, it's, it's amazing how fast, especially back in the day when, you know, as soon as you leave, everybody's like, oh, Americans. We don't need more Americans doing stuff over here. <laughs> um, but, You know, I've been around there enough that I don't get that so much anymore and really have friendships with the clients over there. And, you know, I've known them for more than 10 years now. So, um, and we both wanted to do this project for a long time. So, so, you know, getting to work on something with friends and, and something that we've just thought about for so long and finally making it happen is really cool. Yeah, give us an update on St. Patrick's. Um, a year and a half ago, we went over and built a couple of greens and irrigated them just to kind of show people what we could do and get a little start. Last summer, when we weren't so busy, we we got a cracking start on the golf course even before all the funding was in place. You know, I kind of funded the first part of it because um, – because I had 
some really talented people kind of sitting around with nothing to do. And yet, and then at the same time, I knew this summer it looked like we were going to be really busy and it was going to be hard to pull people away to go do that in Ireland. So we went ahead and started and we built all, we shaped and seeded all the greens and a bunch of the tees and a few of the fairways, you know, there's, there's, you know, there was an old golf course there. There is like, three or four halls where we're using the majority of an old fairway. So some of, some of the fairways were kind of half there. They were, they were all, you know, they've kept mowing them over the years, but they kept getting narrower and narrower and narrower. So they weren't really nearly big enough, but at least there was something there to work with. Um, whereas other halls, we, you know, we, we had to start from knee high grass and get that down to something playable is going to take a lot more time. Um, but we got a really good start on the golf course. We've got all 18 greens built. We, you know, we've done a lot of the creative stuff. We haven't built all the bunkers yet, but um, you know, I think that'll only take a month or six weeks here in the spring to get the rest of them built. And the rest of it's just polishing up the fairways and irrigating them and you know, getting them ready so as soon as it gets warm enough to germinate grass, we can plant the rest of it this, this spring. And... Uh, you know, we, we hope we've got a little loop of holes playable this fall and then the rest of the golf course in the spring of 21. So you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, self-funding the beginning of it. Is that, you know, is doing more, being more involved on the, the side of the business side of it, something that you look at, you know, going forward? It is. I mean, you know, I've, Two reasons. One, because I've worked on some very financially successful projects, and and there, you know, and I, I could see that they were going to be really successful. And it's like, yeah, could I have a little piece of this? No, because the client knows just as well as I do how, how successful that's going to be. Um, you know, but two, I don't think you know most people don't realize that some of my best projects just wouldn't have happened unless I'd been willing to go either take a major pay cut to do it or, you know, or have some kind of creative agreement where I get paid some more at the back end of the project in one way or another. You know, it's being a part owner is tricky. You have to trust your partner really well. So, you know, I'm doing that at St. Patrick's where I, you know, the one or two other times I've done it in the past, it hasn't turned out that great. Um, but you know, common ground for the, we talked about for the CGA, you know, I make my money on that, not at the beginning, but in royalties off the green fees that they charge, um, which is great for them. That made their $4 million go that much further when we built the golf course. And, you know, and, and part of that relationship is I really feel more involved in that place. They keep the green fee down in part because my agreement is, you know, if they raise the green fee, I get paid more. And I don't really, I don't want them to raise the green fee so I get paid more, but it's kind of one more factor holding them down a little bit. You know, this is what we promised to do. Let's keep it here. Um, so, you know, projects like Barnboogle and Ballyneal, just to name two, those never would have happened if I just said, yeah, my design fee is $800,000 what do you think <laughs> they would have run for the hills um and those are some of my best work so i absolutely wanted to do those even you know my wife always asked me 
would you do the project for free? <laughs> and I really do try to pick projects kind of on that basis, but hopefully I've got some clients that want to pay me something too. Yeah, that's the important part. You got, you got, you got to feed your uh, associates and that too. Yeah, it, it's interesting. the The idea of having some skin in the game, in a way, you know, when you think about across the industry, could in- ensure more, you know, focused work from all aspects. Where like if you if you have if there's from that kind of setup like you think about a lot of like partnerships outside of golf like a a, a partnership where you get paid off of conversion say marketing wise like yep. you know you you're gonna make sure you do your best work to make sure that it works yes I mean you know a lot of my clients you know there's really not much in the contracts that i sign about promotional stuff you know what will you do what will i do for it but you know a, a lot of them especially in the past just leaned on me really heavily as writer photo- you know i was writing the ad copy i was the photographer you know i was the photographer who had the best pictures of the golf course and on and on and i'm doing all this marketing stuff for for them basically for free and i'm like this is crazy. You know, they, they, they would pay somebody half as much as I'm getting paid for the design just to do all this other stuff that I'm doing for them. Now, if I'm, if I'm a part owner or if I get, you know, if, if I'm some way compensated for all that, that incentivizes me to do all that stuff. Yeah. It's in my, you know, it's in my interest too, to promote this place. Although, you know, to me, one of the keys of trying to do be more involved in the financing of my projects and own them, you know, maybe own a piece of some of them is there's a lot of a golf developers and B wealthy guys who play golf who trust me when I tell them that this site at Barnboogle is really good. That's, you know, the only reason my Kaiser went there is because I told him, yeah, that site might be as good as Pacific Dunes. It's really good. I didn't think he'd want to get involved there at that point, and he wound up being involved in it. Um, but, you know, I didn't really get anything extra out of making that connection other than eventually I got to build a golf course there, so that was that part was good. Um, but, you know, as a lot of times I see, like, the back of my book on getting to 18 is a few of the projects we never got to build, including a couple that somebody else built later on, like Aaron Hills, and others that haven't, that never came together, but still might someday. Because um, you waste a lot of time, you know, it's, it's hard to run a business designing golf courses. You sign a contract, you have no idea if the project's going to happen or when it's going to happen, but you're not going to get paid very much up front. You're not really going to get paid until the thing goes. So, you know, when you're a small, you know, especially in the beginning when you're small and you don't have many projects and, you know, something like Aaron Hills comes up and, oh, this is a cool piece of land. I really want to put time in on this. And you wind up only ever being paid $25,000 for all the time that you spent on it. It's a killer. You know, that's why it's so hard to be a golf course architect on your own because a lot of things fall through. But, you know, when you get to the position I'm in now that the tables kind of turn and it's like, 
if I was involved in a project like that and it's kind of fallen through, I know people that might be interested in helping put that together. And I have a lot of credibility with them because I don't tell them that every single project I do is the coolest thing that it was ever built in the history of golf. I'm very critical. And it's funny, I saw there's a there's an article in one of the new golf magazines about Josh Smith, the painter, mm-hmm. who did the covers of my books, among other things. And uh, and he's he mentioned, I should thank him for mentioning that that when he was just starting out, um, I bought one of I was one of the first people that paid him for one of his paintings. We met him up at Bandon and he was he was just trying to get started doing doing his paintings. And I said, I'll buy one from you for the office. And it's still hanging over here. The it's of the ninth at Pacific Dunes. And the, if you look at the painting closely, there's no flag because it's just grass. <laughs> it's still in growing. We hadn't opened it yet. Um, but Josh said one thing that really helped his career was when he when he told other people in golf that I bought one of his paintings, they were like, wow, you must be really good because Tom doesn't throw the praise around very much. <laughs> if, he, if he says your work is good, it must be good. <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing with, with development. It's like if I go and look at a site and I think, boy, this is, this is really good. Somebody should do this. There are people who will listen. That's something I I get frustrated with sometimes with just the world we live in. Everything's everything's great, you know. And if everything's great, then what is great? The, exactly. And that was the that was the whole point of the confidential guide. It's like when you read the golf magazines, every course is good, better, or best. There is nothing below really good because they ha- they don't want to f- offend any potential advertiser. Um, I offended a lot of people with the confidential guide, but it also gave me a reputation for being really honest about what I thought. And that means that when I like something, people pay more attention. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a venture capitalist on a podcast and one of my favorite quotes that I've ever heard, he said, authenticity will outrun all of your competition. And I think that is big with golf course design too. I th- especially thinking about I, Bill Core talked about Pete Dye on the podcast about how he changed architecture twice, and he recognized people mimicking Pete Dye's style, but just missing the vital components of it. Oh yeah, uh, you know, well, I was thinking PGA West was on TV this weekend. I drew the first plan for PGA West, and yeah, that 16th hole is pretty much exactly like we drew on the plan, and the bunker is 19 feet deep. I know because I drew the grading plan for it. Um, that's but the 17th hole with the island green, that was not an island green on the first plan because Pete didn't really didn't want to do that again. He'd just done it at Sawgrass. It was famous. Everybody paid attention to it. Not everybody loved it. Pete didn't mind that part at all, but he just didn't want to repeat himself. So. So we worked on a plan for a par three hole that was kind of a peninsula green sticking in from the back and it was on a diagonal and it was just different. He wanted to do something different. And we showed it to the client, Joe Walser and Ernie Vossler from Landmark Land. And they, you know, they built like 10 golf courses with Pete. And they, they said, we want an island green. And they were pretty adamant about it. And, you know, a lot of other, you know, if, if, if Pete hadn't done 10 courses for them, he'd have just told them no and walked out of the room. But with them, it was like, 
I've done all this work with them. If they really want that, I'll do it for them. Uh, so we did. That, as far as I can think, I was trying to think yesterday, is that the last Island Green that Pete Dye ever built? And I think it is. You know, there's 20 that Perry and PB have done mm -hmm. that sometimes their dad's name gets on that too. But their dad saying he wanted to build an Island Green, I think he did two. And yet everybody thinks, oh, that's a trademark of a Pete Dye golf course. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting how certain things from architects, if, if the t courses on TV or the ones that are in the high become trademarks of that architect. Like uh, one that jumps to mind is Donald Ross Turtleback Greens because of, of Pinehurst number two. But, you know, the, that not all of, uh, Donald Ross courses have those. No, <laughs> most, most, most <laughs> Donald Ross courses do not have greens like that at all. You build 400 golf courses and there's about three where the greens are like that. And of course those evolved. I mean, Mr. Dye swore that those greens were not like that 50 years ago or 70 years ago when he first saw the golf course. And that, you know, that had just kind of evolved from top dressing, top dressing, top dressing Bermuda greens. I mean, you top dressed them a lot. And, and I could see that. I mean, I, you know, when, when I consulted at Yeaman's Hall before we started rebuilding the greens, they had they had those big green pads, but in either in the depression or world war two, at some point they made the greens a lot smaller to save money. So the green was like a 3000 square foot circle in the middle of those big pads, but because they top dressed the green all the time and not the surrounds, the little three, 3000 square foot pad was a foot higher than the rest of the green. That's how much top dressing had built up over 20, 30 years or whatever they'd been doing it for. So uh, you can see how the, those greens of Pinehurst could have evolved that much too. Mm -hmm. But no, if you, uh, well, it just goes to show, you know, when I wrote for Golf Magazine years and years ago, they asked me to do a piece on Pinehurst number two for, it was probably the first of the U.S. Opens that was there. And the story I wrote for them was how Pinehurst number two was not a typical Donald Ross course. And how different it was than a lot of his courses using a bunch of other examples. And they, the editors basically came back to me and said, yeah, we understand all that. But can you write about the ways where it is like a typical Donald Ross course? Because that's a story that everybody wants to read. So ignore all that. Yeah. It's like, damn. But that's, you know, that's, that's the journalism business. Mm -hmm. Now I'm my own publisher and I have to deal with that step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, what, uh. It's fine. I, I, I write on my site without, you know, I write whatever I want. But when I do assignments for other people, I always find them to be the hardest ones to write because I don't get to write whatever I want. Yes. It's, it's, well, it's also more dangerous when you're writing by yourself without a filter and you just hit done and it's out there. <laughs> sometimes, you know, there's good reasons for people to have a layer of management in between there sometimes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, food conscious asked uh, favorite Pete Dye design, but I know you don't like favorite. So let's go ten rounds. You got ten. You got ten rounds to spend at Pete Dye courses. How are you Ooh. spending them? You can, you know, can you use multiple rounds? Obviously, if you want it. Well, I would have to go back to Long Cove, which was the first construction project that I worked on, and and play there a couple times. We were actually going to go back there for a crew reunion like four or five years ago, and um, 
Mrs. Die canceled it at the last minute. And that was the first inkling I had that Pete was not doing okay. You know, that, that he, he just wasn't going to be up to that. And, you know, I've had Alzheimer's in my family. So I read the handwriting on the wall for that. And I've, you know, so I've kind of known ever since, but uh, Long Cove was a really cool, it was the first course he built after the TPC at Sawgrass. It was a development golf course, houses all around it. Although back in the woods, he had a wide enough corridor that you don't, the houses never feel like they're on top of you. Um, but a really beautiful piece of land for Hilton Head, you know, a little movement and, and gets out to the marsh on the back nine, some inland lagoons that they built. I guess they started trying to do something for a project there years before. So they dug a bunch of lagoons and stuff. And there were, there were a bunch of features that had been there for a while and kind of matured again instead of us digging lakes. Um, they like naturalized. Yes. Yes. Just, I mean, stream song is the same, you know, they, they just threw sand around for mining for years and it just blew around, but it also vegetation grew back on it. And by the time we saw it, it looked natural except for like, you know, some of those landforms aren't natural. You don't see a 20 foot trench through, through ground the way they had a couple on the property. Um, but other than the shapes of things in certain places, it looked like it'd been there for a long time because there was vegetation on it. Um, so definitely a round or two at Long Cove. Um, I spent some time with Mr. Dye at Teeth of the Dog. I didn't have anything to do. The course was built when I was 10 or whatever. Um, but he, at the time, he absolutely said that was the best course that he'd ever built. It was certainly the coolest property. He's got six or seven holes right along the Caribbean. Um, but he loved everything about it. He, you know, it was mostly built by hand by like hundreds of Dominican laborers. They barely had any working bulldozers down there. You know, you'd have a bulldozer and then it'd break down and it'd be, you know, it couldn't get apart for a month. So, so a lot of this stuff was done by hand and a lot of this stuff, you know, I asked him when I was down there, I was like, you know, I think we've talked before about the world Atlas of golf. One of the, one of the great early books about golf course architecture and great golf courses. And there's a picture right in the front of it, like on one of the title pages or something, this two page spread of the eighth hole at teeth of the dock. And you see the fair, the T sticking out on the point, the fairway going around and the green like it is now, but there's also where there's houses. Now it looked like another fairway over there all mowed down tight and nothing on it. And when I was with Pete down there, I said, I've seen this picture. Did you have like another fairway over there to the right? And he said, when we were building the golf course, um, where the fairway is now was all coral, just, just coral with holes in it everywhere. He said, so, so I built the fairway over there up higher first. And then I had all these laborers just with two buckets over their shoulders, fill in all the holes in the coral with sand over the course of like two or three years. And then when they got all that filled in, we moved the fairway down here Holy and cow. they put lots over there. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> 
you know, not every place would they let you do that anymore, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, that's, you know, Pete just loved A, being able to do that kind of stuff. B, he loved the people down there. You know, when I worked for him, if he and Alice had more than a week where they weren't working on something else, instead of just going back to Florida, they would go to the Dominican. Yeah. He just loved everything about it. And the funniest thing, when I worked for him, every time he'd come back from the Dominican and I'd see him on a site somewhere, he'd be like, the, the superintendent's name, I can't remember his last name, but his, his name was Jose. And every time Pete would come back from the Dominican, he'd say, oh, I saved Jose's ass again. You know, he was like, almost lost the grass on half the golf course, but we got it put back together. And after like the third, you know, this is going on for like two or three years. And so after about the third time, I'm like, why does Jose still have a job? <laughs> you know, because it doesn't sound like he's doing really well. And then after a couple more times and hearing Pete talk about it, I was like, he likes going there and saving Jose's ass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, if everything was running like a top in the Dominican, it wouldn't be as much fun for Pete. He, he probably wants wouldn't to get a visit as much either. He wants <laughs> to have something to do when he's there. <laughs> and it's like, save the grass on the golf course and don't over-fertilize it this time. Um, but he just loved that place. And he hated that, you know, in the 80s, the Dominican really was the third world. And there weren't, there weren't a lot of guys from New York hopping on a plane and going down there for the weekend. Um, and he hated how little publicity that course had compared to Harbortown and the TPC and his famous courses. So one of the reasons he sent me there a couple of times was to get good pictures of it and try to help get the golf magazines to talk about it some because he really loved it. Um, and, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't been there for 20 years, so I'd be curious to go back and see what, how much he changed it since the last time I saw it because I'm sure there's some pieces that are different. You know, they, always, they also have a hurricane every once in a while to, like, rearrange things for them and give, them, give Pete something to do. Um, so definitely there. Might spend a lot of my time there. Um, the golf club, I haven't played there in ages. I did stop in and see it three or four years ago when I was down in that area, seeing some of their courses for my book. Uh, but I didn't it just, I saw, I'd seen about three other golf courses that day and I stopped in at the end of the day. I'd really like to get back out and play it again. Cause that's, you know, that's as close to my style of golf courses as anything Pete ever did. You know, it's, it's a fairly gentle piece of ground and, you know, he made a few really abrupt landforms, and he, he made that crazy hole where, you know, the fairway is elevated two feet, and there's just a whole railroad tie or actually telephone pole sawed off, separating the fairway from the rough. Um, he did some really creative things on a pretty flat piece of ground instead of jacking it up and moving dirt all over the place. And it's really fun, and it's a hard golf course, too. Um, I might actually like to go back to PGA West. You know, it's funny. When I was working on Stone Eagle, I never went back over there. It's probably about a half-hour drive to get over there and see, see it. But, um, you know, part of my job on that was trying to do it as efficiently as possible so they could put homes around the rest of it and maximize that. And, you know, it's funny because we never – we made the course – I think it was like 350 yards longer than the TPC at Sawgrass when it was built. Of course, it's in the desert. The ball flies a little farther. 
but we thought we were building it really long in 1984 <laughs> in 1985 well you did they the the tour <laughs> players revolted they they said that they could it's the hardest they they got it off the tour three or after one year yes they their their objection was their excuse was we play three other golf courses that are like birdie fests and this one really hard one and if like you know you'd if friday is the windy day Everybody that plays PGA West on Friday is screwed. Yeah. You know, they'll shoot 10 shots higher and, and have no chance in the tournament the rest of the week. And, you know, it's funny. Like, if you look at the – this, I didn't watch much of the tournament at all, but if you look at the day-to-day -day scoring, it's like all the guys they figure are contenders play PGA West on Saturday and Sunday to try to minimize that. Mm -hmm. It's like they keep them all together so that nobody can complain too much about that if it happens. Yeah, they they arrange them like the biggest names are Saturday, Sunday there. Right. Yeah. And that's that's partly for the pro am thing too. You know, the pro am's going to be on TV on Saturday, or do they even have one anymore? I don't. Even they know. have a pro am. Okay. I, I forgot who was. But that used to be the biggest part of the deal, and that's where you know there's a lot of a lot of fundraising for a lot of charities go on there. Um, so it was five days for a long time to even get more out of it that way. Yeah. Where it was a four day pro am, and then Sunday the amateurs didn't play anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and then let's see, you know, the other one that I'd really like to go back to that I have not seen and I've never even seen the, the back nine finished was the Pete Dye golf club in West Virginia. Pete sent me there like right at the end of when I was working for him, I went through, he was working on crooked stick, redoing crooked stick and rebuilding the greens at crooked stick. And I went through there and I was headed back east, and his client from West Virginia called and said they wanted to do a little more work toward building the golf course. And Pete said, you want to go see that? So I, I went and worked on it for like two or three weeks. And this project, his client was a coal miner, and when things got slow in the coal mine, they went and built golf holes for a while. And then when things recovered, he went. So he was like, he was never in a hurry to finish it at all. I think they started it in like 1978 or 79. And the story I was telling you about was from 1985. And they were just getting back to it. Nothing had been grassed yet. It was still just dirt. And they didn't, they, I went to the grand opening of the front nine. They still didn't have the back nine finished in 1993 coming home from the grand opening of stonewall so i had opened five golf courses by the time they finished nine holes of this thing that i worked on for pete and they started i mean they, they'd been working on it for 15 years at that point but it was a beautiful site it's got this you know it's in very hilly terrain and it's got this big river running through it and it's just gorgeous um it's in a really rural area and you know the club that they built has kind of suffered and never caught on and i think one of those outfits that owns several courses in different places around the country owns the place now um but if pete i had finished that golf course in 1978 80 it would be famous because it had all the big severe stuff that he was doing way before any way before sawgrass and pga west and all those golf courses opened 
but nobody saw it until 15 years later when that was all kind of, oh, there's nothing new here. And there is new there. I mean, it's, it's different. It's, it's a pretty exaggerated version of stuff, but I would really like to see it finished because I never did. So something you said about Long Cove, about it being a project and having, you know, these features, these man-made features that weathered and the vegetation that went around it. Would that, I'm just thinking forward is like a golf course that's been, you know, that goes, you know, where it, it dies and then coming back, would that give some advantages to golf courses that may have closed and, you know, gone dormant where it could come back as a better version of itself? Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, one of the big problems with taking an old golf course is that the, you know, they planted a bunch of trees wherever when they built it and, and they haven't, nobody managed that for years and years. So that stuff's kind of out of control and you really, you know, you've, you've got to clean it up a lot compared to what, the piece of land was originally. Um, you know, to me, it's better to have those kind of features on a raw piece of land. You know, if there was a golf course there, then all that planting and everything was done on the basis of the routing that's there, that was there from the guy before. And it's really hard to overcome that. You know, if, if, if all the holes are running north and south and there's trees in between them, you can't change the routing and start going east and west. It's just like it's just like all those rocky ridges I was talking about at Stone Eagle. You know, it just looks stupid to play the through the checkerboard the other way. Um, but you know, so the only time you can really reroute a golf course is if there's not much big stuff between holes, like the course that we just did in Australia at the National. You know, that's Dunesland. And even though there's, you know, long grasses growing around it in places, it's kind of the native stuff that was always there. And when we decided we wanted to change the routing, it's just as simple as, you know, let's, let's build a green over there in the rough and let's cut sod out of where this fairway used to go and connect it up to that. Um, the hard part was not that. That was the easy part. Actually, the hard part was they'd shaped a lot to build the greens on the on the course. So we had to deconstruct all that, which took a lot more time than I expected. I just hadn't really thought about, well, I hadn't thought about how much work they'd done, you know, cause, cause it's one of those golf courses that they said, oh yeah, they just laid it out and just laid it right on the ground. And it's like, uh, uh-uh. it wouldn't have taken us nearly so much time <laughs> or effort to put it back together if they had just done that. <laughs> that's, that's one of golf's like all time cliches. You know, they just, it is, laid it you know, and I, I, well, you know, some people have asked me about my book that I'm working on. Aren't you afraid that you're like giving up too many secrets here? And, you know, like certain clients, I won't name names, but certain clients love the myth about their place Mm -hmm. and don't want everybody to know that it was a little harder than how they say it was. Or in some cases, they want it to sound harder than it was. You know, it's, it's weird, but you get both, you get both kinds. Um, and, you know, here I am saying what was really there at the start and what, you know, that feature, that was always there. This one over here, no, I'm, we made that up completely from scratch. And there's some people like, why would you want to do that and spoil the mystery? And why would you, why would you tell other architects that's what you did and let them all figure it out? And I'm like, 
that goes back, the last question goes back to working for the dyes because the dyes were not like that at all. You know, once you were kind of working for them, they treated you like part of the family and there were no secrets at all. Um, you know, wh why are we doing, you know, I mean, Pete might get annoyed sometimes if you ask too many questions, but he would never hold anything back because he was trying to keep it a secret from you. He told me a ton of stuff that I had no idea that I would ever have the chance to apply. And now I get to apply it. And there was I, the one time that I remember most vividly, there was a point where I was living just before I went to PGA West, I was living with his son PB on a project in Savannah, which is called the Ford Plantation now, I think. Okay. That was another project that took years from start to finish. They, they built the front nine, and then they didn't get the back nine built until like years later. But um, we're staying at a house, and, and one of the guys on the construction crew was PB's college roommate, Steve Luciola. So the three of us are staying in this house. And one night, we're just sitting up, shooting the shit, and PB is expounding on some part of golf course design. And Steve stopped him in the middle of what he was saying and said, are you really sure you should be telling all this stuff to Tommy? Because he's smart. He'll probably remember it all. <laughs> and PV just looked at him and said, shrugged his shoulders and went, hell, if he could take this and go out and build golf courses on his own, so much the better. More good golf courses. That's the way they were. So that's the way I am. I mean, if, if anybody in the business asked me how we did something or why we did something, I'll tell them. Yeah, I think that's, it's a, and if you look at the history of architecture, typically what happened is it evolved, you know, yes. one, it took one style and it evolved into a different style and, you know. Well, and back in the day, all, you know, all those guys from Philadelphia were good friends. Yeah. And then they went on, you know, and George Thomas moved to L.A. and started doing things out there and spreading the word. And, you know, Mackenzie traveled all over and taught other guys how to build stuff. Yeah. yeah that, that exchange of ideas is, is I, I always look at history of golf design, and that's kind of what happened. Everything stopped for a while, and then we, we got to the 50s, and it was a distinctly different, different style. Yeah, and really... You know, I know from working for the Dyes and then from being around Jack Nicholas a little bit and seeing how his operation worked. And, um, you know, the Dyes never sent, like Perry Dye would send guys to see his dad's other courses so they could get a sense of what they like to build. But, you know, I was certainly the first one and one of the only ones that went out and saw everybody else's golf courses too. And that really, you know, it helped me when I, you know, when I would have conversations with Pete Dye about stuff, he'd be trying to describe something to me. If I didn't understand what he meant, I'd be like, you mean like the 13th green at Cricket Stick? Or you mean like the 12th green at Oakmont or wherever? But it was a shorthand conversation of something like this. And it really helped. You know, you could, you understood each other a lot you know not just that the greens tilting away but a lot of other things that go with that once you start comparing it to something else that you've seen um, and there's a lot of architects that just don't encourage that at all nicholas when when we finished sabonic jack brought 
a lot of his associates up to see it. And they did a tour of it, and then they went over to, they actually went to Friar's Head and went around it too the same day. And one of them pulled me aside in the middle of the walk around, and he's like, just so you know, we don't ever do this. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, you know we're, re we're really busy, so mostly we only look at our own golf courses. That's all the time we have. But Jack's never, like, given us a tour of somebody else's golf course, like going over to Friar's Head. And, you know, and we're only doing this because he thinks Sabonic is different enough and he wants to show us what he likes about it. Um, so, but the whole idea of you know, going to see every McKenzie and Perry Maxwell course that you could get to. I don't, you know, that didn't originate with me. Pete Dye had seen all those in his own time. But um, I think I made it popular again, where, where now it's like every young person that calls me and wants to be a golf course architect has seen half those places already. It's like, it's kind of astonishing to me that they, they've seen as much as they have. It's, uh, I think, like, Maxwell's, you know, he's got a good following, but, you know, Mackenzie's obviously so popular because of the top of his, you know, collection of courses that he designed is so famous. Yeah. And I think and Maxwell's about to just, you know, blow, you know, be the next one that reaches that Mackenzie's status, maybe. Maybe, but... You know, if you really look at it, one of the one of the things that really separates those guys in terms of how how much their work is a topic of popular discussion is whether they wrote a book. If they wrote a book, then you can quote them, and there's all kinds of you know, you can speak very knowledgeably without actually having seen many of the golf courses. Whereas Maxwell, because he didn't really write very much down. You not only have to go see his golf courses, but you have to figure them out for yourselves instead of just accepting what Mackenzie wrote in his book in 1920 about what he was doing. The other thing with Maxwell and Mackenzie is lo the location of where they designed. You know, Mackenzie in America, San Francisco, he's got a plethora of, of sure. designs. And, and then Maxwell, you're, you're going through Oklahoma, you know, Iowa, the North Carolina. They're, they're just less populous areas flyover country mm -hmm. i live in flyover country now too <laughs> yeah it's uh the uh yeah maxwell is, is that was somewhere someone i've made a you know a concerted effort in the last year to see a lot of his stuff and it's just incredible and that was you know when i wrote a letter to ben crenshaw like 40 years ago now and asked him if if he was me what golf courses should i go see he gave me a very short list and Prairie Dunes was on it and, and you know, he loved that place and he loved a lot about Maxwell's stuff. Obviously Maxwell built some pretty wild greens and, you know, Ben had grown up on a set of Maxwell greens. That's so so he had an affinity for that from the start. <laughs>